welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast. I'm your host, Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady. Edible Alpha is a curated learning community whose goal is to accelerate the dissemination of the best practices for creating profitable food companies. This starts with understanding and implementing the right business model and preparing companies to raise the right kind of money at the right time. This information is what entrepreneurs need. It's also what lenders and investors need. This podcast series is one dimension of Edible Alpha. In it, we will be interviewing a wide range of stakeholders, including entrepreneurs, lenders, investors, and service providers. Each of these podcasts will showcase elements required to build and fund profitable food businesses. Yeah, so, hey, Jeff, thanks for coming down to talk with us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so why don't you start by talking about the Law and Entrepreneurship Clinic and what you do there? Sure. Uh, the, the Law and Entrepreneurship Clinic is a clinic of the University of Wisconsin's law school. Uh, we use second and third year law students to provide free legal services for startup businesses. Yeah, and you've worked with a lot of my the client companies that I've worked with, and I can say that it's been super helpful. Yeah, we, we get a lot of really good feedback, um, and you know we a significant amount of our work, I'll say you know ten to fifteen percent, sort of fluctuates with time, um, but about fifteen percent of of the work that we do is in the food and beverage industry. I think people do think about talking to an attorney when it comes to formation. So I'm starting my company and I need to be created as something, right? Uh, I need to be an LLC or or a C-Corp and I don't know what I need to be, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is is where food and beverage um, is really, really interesting. Um, In other industries we can sort of make a generalized recommendation and know that it doesn't really matter if that's not the perfect fit because it'll be a good fit. Um, so in the technology space, for example, any, any client that comes to me, I can say Delaware C Corp. Mm-hmm. And I know that won't be a problem, mm-hmm. right? I know that, I know that's not going to create a problem for them. Um, if somebody comes to me and says, I'm going to start a business consulting company and it's just going to be me, you're an LLC, mm-hmm. right? And, and I can know that and I can, you know, and you really don't even have to spend two or three seconds thinking about it. It's, you know, we can make these recommendations and know that they're not going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, food and beverage is very, very different. It requires... Um, because of sort of the universe of possibilities in the food and beverage industry, the universe of possibilities in, in, in thinking about what this company is going to look like in, a, in some sort of reasonable time frame, you know, and thinking, you know, one year, five year, ten mm-hmm. years. I'm not sure I'd really want to think much more than 20 years because Who nobody can predict happen. anything yeah. that happens 20 years from now. Um, I'd argue people aren't really very good at predicting things that are going to happen five years from now. But um, we can at least think and have growth plans for the next five years. Um, 
And in food and beverage, you can have, not only is the context very, very different depending on the person in front of you, um, but what that company looks like in five to 10 years can be very, very different. In other words, you can have a very large national scale company that's two people that contract, manufacture a product and distribute nationally. And that can be an LLC. Mm-hmm. And, and because even though it has these sort of huge costs and huge revenues, um, at the end of the day, it's all sort of paper moving around and it's, there's really not a huge impact. You don't need a ton of investment to make mm-hmm. that happen. Um, it's really just the effort of two people who are in business together. Um, and so you can have this very large, what looks like a very large company that actually has a very small corporate footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, you can have a very, very small, very, very local company that has a very large corporate footprint because it's a farm with a production facility on it that allows people to come in, tour the farm, and it sells not only, uh, you know, it sells straight from the farm itself, but also has, you know, distribution through, you know, to local grocery stores. And there you have a very small company that has a very large corporate footprint. And so that might not only be a single company, that might be multiple companies that are all interrelated, um, some of which are LLCs, some of which are C-Corps, some of which might be, um, some of which might be estates or some other kind of weird corporate entity, corporate or personal entity, depending on who the owner of the farm is and want that what they want to happen with that farm. Uh, in their family, right? Mm-hmm. You, you start to get into family interests. Um, so the the corporate discussion, that, that entity discussion, um, you just can't start from any one place mm-hmm. uh, in the food and beverage industry. Um, you know, it's, it, it's really so dependent on specific circumstances um, that, that to me is what makes it really interesting. Now, when I say really interesting to a lawyer, that usually means really expensive for mm-hmm. you. Um, but from a, at least at the clinic, it's free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, um, yeah, the other, the other thing I can say is, um, what's, what's really different to me is in, in a path where you're going to, where you're growing a company that's, you know, a VC is going to be involved at some point in the financing. They, it, they tend to need to be C-Corps, right? So around here, people, um, legal folks who aren't used to dealing with food will be like, oh, you know, we need to make this into a C-Corp. And in, in food, it's often a private equity fund that is going to do something either in the early or later, and they actually don't want C-Corps because they get all upset about, about double taxation, and they really like to keep it as a LLC. So like Tara's Way made it all the way to a sale to a public company as an LLC because that is kind of was preferred by the investment vehicles that came into our company. So... It's complicated, as you said, in food. And I think it's, uh, it, you definitely, the more you understand kind of what your business path is going to be and who's likely to want to be an investor or something over time, the better your choice is going to be in the beginning. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, it, you know, it, 
you know, in spite of everything that I just said um, about there being a whole universe of options out there, um, manager-managed LLC is never a bad option. Mm-hmm. Um, it, if you're just going to pick something out of the air and go with it because you have to, um, that's a good one to pick and run with. Yeah, because um, you can always become a C-corp, right, if you have to. Right. You can... You, from a manager-managed LLC, you can do a lot of things where if you, for example, you can convert to a C-Corp. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say you can't convert from a C-Corp to an LLC, but you can't do so in a non in a tax-free way. Mm-hmm. You can convert from, a, from an LLC to a C-Corp, quote, tax-free. Um, so it, it, it doesn't create a taxable event to, to do that. Um, so, you know, starting out in an LLC and then figuring out what to do from there um, is sort of a, you know, if you don't know what to do, but you have to do something, mm-hmm. that's the best thing to, to do. Um, otherwise, have a discussion with a lawyer because, you know, you're definitely going to get into this sort of strategic planning kind of thing. You know, if if you think you're going to be taking venture capital, which you're probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, most food and beverage does not go through venture mm-hmm. capital. Um, they're not, the returns aren't high enough. The, the retur- or at least not traditional venture capital. Mm-hmm. The, they're not particularly interested in it. Um, that may or may not change, but at least as we're sitting here today, it's not changing it's not anytime happening. soon. Um, so, uh, so, you know, the needs of venture capital for a C-Corp um, are pretty minimal. Um, but that's not to say that, you know, there aren't other good reasons to be a C-Corp. Um, and, you know, that's not to say that, you know, it's just a, it's a decision that you, you really have to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where where's the money going to come from? You know, are you putting it in personally Um are you getting it from your friends and family? Are you getting loans? Um, are you going to go and find outside equity investors, angel investors, private equity? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, thinking about where that money is going to come from, what your relationship to that money mm-hmm. is, right? Are these people that you know really well? Are they people that you don't know at all? Um you know, do you just not know at all where, you know, what's going to happen in the next five years? Um, you know, it, it, it all creates a, you know, it all creates a strategic discussion that, that you just have to have mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. before finally settling on something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is something you want to talk to an attorney about because you, you I, I mean, there are people who go, you know, like legal Zoom or something and get their LLC agreement. And all that language actually makes a big difference in your life as you proceed, right, in your business. So that yeah. is not a good plan. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Um you know, this is sort of, you know, I'm a practicing lawyer, so, you know, take that for what it's worth. But um, LegalZoom and other document generation companies, you know, this probably sounds worse than what they would want it to sound like, but to me it is legal malpractice. I mean, they're, they're, they're giving you a document that you don't know what it means. It's not written specifically for you. Um, and particularly in food and beverage, where every relationship is so different from from any of the others, that there's no way that that document that you that you bought off of LegalZoom is even remotely relevant 
um, to the situation that you're in. Um, and to, you know, to, to make that even, uh, you know, to, to make that even stronger, even if you bought that document and took it to a lawyer and said, can you modify this to, to fit my situation? It would cost you more money to do that than if you just went to the lawyer in the first place and had them create something, Mm -hmm. um, that was specific to you from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you've already bought your thing from LegalZoom, then I guess I'm sorry. Uh, but um, I would say, you know, go and talk to a lawyer about this stuff and, and talk to a lawyer that deals regularly with entity issues. Um, you know, I know that, you know, you get out into some of the rural areas and the lawyers there um, may or may not deal with this stuff on a regular basis. Try to find somebody who does, mm-hmm. um, you know, even in the, you know, even in the slightly larger towns, you know, around Wisconsin that have, um, you know, that have lawyers, uh, that have a number of lawyers in the, in the town. I'm sure you can find somebody that deals regularly in this area. Mm -hmm. So go find one of them, um, talk to them, um, and, you know, get, get documents that are specific to your situation, because these are going to be the documents that when you and your business partner, you or in your, in, in your investor have a fight, and you will have a fight. Yeah. Um, when you have a fight, this document will tell you how to resolve that. Mm-hmm. And you don't want something that not only do you not understand, isn't written for the way you guys want to operate. Right. Um, right. And it, it especially when it involves partners or investors, yeah. yeah, that's when things start getting much more complicated and should be represented those rules of the game get defined in your in yeah. your formation documents. Um, the other thing I, I just wanted to mention and see if you would reflect on this a little bit is when people do ec- equity raises, they have to do an offering memorandum. And, um, and that, I think people think, well, you know, I don't really need to do that because it's only, you know, a little bit of money. And so people kind of start asking people for money and they have no documentation. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? I do want to talk about that a little bit because I agree. I agree 100 percent that I think people um, tend to underestimate the um, tend to underestimate the complications that securities presents even for small companies. Um, It doesn't matter how big your company is as to whether you have to comply with securities law. You always have to comply Mm -hmm. with securities law. Um, And and what that means is any time that you're selling an interest in your company, um, any interest in your company, whether it's to your mom and dad, to your you know, or to your best friend or to somebody you've never met. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those are sales of an interest in your company mm-hmm. and they are all governed by securities law. Um, so whenever you are selling a security, um, you have to think about um, the rights of that person that you're selling the security to. And the, the, the default rule in, in, the, in a securities regulatory environment, the, the default rule is that you have to disclose a lot of things about what they're investing in. And 
it's a document of you know it's it's a document that is a parade of horribles right i mean it, right. it, it is not a marketing pop- document right all the things that could possibly go <laughs> it's, wrong right you know yeah. it's take your selling brochure and write this may not happen right. on, in front of every right. single sentence mm-hmm. um <laughs> and then add another 20 pages <laughs> um <laughs> yeah i mean they are long horrible terrible documents that you know, outline all of the ways in which you are a terrible business owner. Um, And none of it's true. I mean, none of it, strictly none of it's true, but they're all potentially true, right? There, you know, at any moment, you know, something bad can happen. And based Mm -hmm. on what your company is, you have a different range of bad things that can happen. If you're a food and beverage company, you could poison and kill someone and create liability for your company. Um, and that's something that you have mm-hmm. to disclose to your investors because they may not realize the specific ways in which you can kill somebody mm-hmm. and create liability for the company, which, you know, to them means they're going to lose their money. Um, so the default rule is that you have to create these disclosure documents. In fact, there's a default rule that says um, that you have to register your security with both the federal government and the state. The reality is that there are a lot of exceptions. There are a lot of exceptions, Mm -hmm. not only to registration, but to disclosure. Um, And so this is where talking to a lawyer about who you are and what you're doing and who you are selling securities to is extraordinarily important because it's possible that you fall into one or more exceptions. That means you don't have to register and or create a disclosure. now, there isn't always going to be an exception. Sometimes the, the easier answer might be let's do the disclosure documents mm-hmm. because, you know, we either don't want to do what's necessary to fall within the nearest exception um, or we're going to be dealing with a class of people that just negates the exception entirely. Mm-hmm. So, um Talking to an attorney to know what those exceptions are um, and to know what the disclosure is and how that has to get written, um, it's not a fun discussion. And frankly, it's a, f- it's a fairly expensive discussion to have. Um, for early stage companies, at least, you can come to the Law and Entrepreneurship Clinic and, you know, we can do, uh, we can do some securities work. Um, yeah, and we're talking about like friends and family. Friends and family, we kind of yeah, we kind of draw mm-hmm. the line at around two hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you're looking at you know if you're if you need you know fifty or a hundred thousand dollars, that's something that the that the L and E clinic can help with. Otherwise, you know, you really should be talking to an experienced attorney who knows um, securities law, um, and. You know, with rare exception, unfortunately, that's going to mean you're going to a larger law firm in a city or you're going to at least a law firm in a city that deals with um, securities issues on a regular basis. There are some uh, there are some good boutique firms that that deal with that area. So it may not be a large law firm. It may not be, you know, hundreds of attorneys or whatever. Um, You know, the other thing I tell people about that is that if you are needing to raise larger amounts of money, 
the people who do securities law deal with people who have money and who are placing money all the time. And so it's actually kind of an important part of your network. And when investors are evaluating you, they feel a lot better if you have representation from somebody who is experienced in securities law. That, that's absolutely right. Um, so the, the lawyers that deal with securities in, in, uh, in, in sort of any capacity, um, you know, they, you're, you're right, that they have their networks of people, and um, in not only can they help to connect you to those people, so there, there might be some more money there, um, but they provide, you know, the, the, the people that have the money know who those lawyers are and they're comfortable with the documents that, that those lawyers are producing. Right, right, right. And they, and they're kind of like a, a bit of good housekeeping seal of approval too, yep. you know, not, I mean, not explicitly, yep. but they kind of make an assumption that if you're working with somebody like that, you've been well advised yep. and they wouldn't waste your time, their time with somebody who wasn't. So there are a yep. lot of benefits, I think, that people kind of don't think of when when they're looking at the price tag of this going, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I agree with you mm-hmm. um, that, you know, that there is something to be said for that reputation. Mm-hmm. I think the one major thing that we didn't talk about maybe was protection of recipes. Mm, um, that yeah. tends to be one area where we get um, a lot of questions. Uh, is in the protection of recipes. Um, there's the the law around protection of recipes is relatively clear, um, which is that you can't use copyright to protect a recipe. Um, you probably cannot use patent law, or though though there are some ex- some kind of weird, interesting exceptions to that. Um, that deal mostly with the process of your recipe more so than the recipe itself. Um, but uh, by and large, when we're talking about protection of recipe, we're talking about trade secret. Mm-hmm. Um, and trade secret means that you have something of value and that you're going to keep it a secret. And by having something of value that you keep a secret, that means other people can't take it from you. Mm-hmm. Um in particular, that means people like employees. Um, so this is like it. the recipe for Coca-Cola, So this right? is like the recipe for Coca-Cola or the recipe for your cheese mm-hmm. or the recipe for your beer or the recipe for your salsa or whatever it is, right? Um, now, you, have to, you usually have to disclose the ingredients on a label, but you don't have to disclose what percentage of those ingredients you use, right? So the recipe is how do you create this thing, right? How, how does this thing get created? Um, and so you can't protect that by copyright, but what you can do is not tell anybody how you do it. Um, and, and what I mean by that is we have, we have two types of, of secrecy when we talk about trade secret protection, and you need to implement both of them. Uh, The first is what I call contractual secrecy, and that is anybody that you tell the the recipe to is protected under contract from disclosing it Mm -hmm. to somebody else, right? This is using a non-disclosure or confidentiality agreement. Um, And if you tell somebody what your recipe is, they sign a document that says, I promise not to tell mm-hmm. anybody what the recipe is, right? That's what we call contractual secrecy. The second is what we call process secrecy. 
And process secrecy, I would argue to you, is, is even more important than contractual secrecy. Because the problem with contract, contractual secrecy is you've told the person the thing and you're relying on their word that they're mm-hmm. not going to go tell somebody. If they do tell somebody, then you at least have a contract that they signed that lets you go and get damages. The problem is now they've already told somebody. Mm-hmm. So contractual secrecy is important and necessary, but it only takes you so far. Process secrecy is far more important. And what I mean by process secrecy is that when you def- when you design the processes of creating your product, you create it in such a way that it's that it's modular and that the process can be broken down and that the people that work on particular parts of the process don't know the rest of the process. Mm -hmm. So they do the one piece that they're being asked to do, but they don't know how everything else works. Mm -hmm. Um, And the, the example that I like to use for this um, is new Glarus's beer, the Belgian red. Um, It is a beer that is absolutely unique to New Glarus. They stopped submitting it to awards competitions because Mm -hmm. it won gold in every single competition it was ever submitted to. Mm -hmm. And they decided they were going to let other people win the competitions. Mm -hmm. So they just stopped submitting it to competitions. Mm -hmm. Um, It is one of the greatest beers on the planet. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, this this isn't subjective taste here. Mm -hmm. This is objectively considered one of the greatest beers on the planet. Um, is the New Glarus Belgian Red. And there is one person who knows how it's made. Hmm. And that person is Dan Carey. And when Dan Mm -hmm. Carey dies, New Glarus won't be able to make Belgian Red. And the reason for that is there are hundreds of people that work for Dan at New Glarus. Sure. And they all make beer. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure they all have some input into making what becomes the Belgian red, Mm -hmm. but only Dan knows how the whole process works together to Mm -hmm. create that particular beer. There might be, you know, somebody in the malt house that dumps some malt into a, um, that dumps some malt into a boiler. Uh, and then there's somebody on the other end who, uh, who, takes the word out and puts it into a barrel. And then there's somebody else that, you know, takes the barrel off the shelf and puts it into a bottle. But none of those people know what the other person is doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the end of the day, when it comes to how long does it stay in the barrel, how long, you know, what, you know, what ingredients get added at what part, Mm -hmm. how long does it do each thing, where is it stored, how is it stored, all of those things, only one person knows that. And that's Dan. Mm -hmm. And so any one of those people can go to another brewery and Dan doesn't have to rely on contractual relationships to know they're not going to disclose it. Mm -hmm. He's going to rely on the fact that nobody can take Belgian red with them because none of them actually know how it's made. Right, right. Interesting. So I call that, I call that process secrecy Mm -hmm. and that's thinking about how you make your product and modularizing it in a way that the people who are in the parts of the process only know how to do that do particular part of, part of, right. the, of the process. And, they, and they, they might be able to guess, but they don't know for sure what the whole process looks like right. for that particular thing. And you can see how that would abstract easily to cheese, uh, beer, mm-hmm. liquor, wine, uh, Yeah, and I've seen salsas. it in like... Like um, spice blends and spice stuff. Spice blends, yeah. Yeah, yeah. where it's really tightly controlled. Who yeah. knows what's in it and, and what amounts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a great point. 
What else about food and legal stuff? Have we covered everything? The tip of the iceberg of everything? We, we, I, I think we've gotten a pretty good broad range of, of things. Um, yeah, uh, well, there'll be that's opportunities. That's a pretty high level. Yeah, well, there'll be other opportunities for deep diving into into um, various areas related to food. But this has been terrific. Thanks for coming. And Absolutely. Yeah, and I look forward to more work. Yeah, me yeah. too. Cool. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Edible Alpha podcast. If you like what you heard, rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Visit edible-alpha.org for more resources about the best practices in making money in food. 